Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the European Student Think Tank podcast. My name is Victoria. And my name is Florentin. Today, we are joined by Johanna Pamukoglu, EST ambassador to the Netherlands, to talk about the pandemic's impact on domestic violence. As October marked the Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Welcome, Johanna. Hello, everyone. Let's start with introducing yourself and this topic. So, my name is Joanna. I am originally from Greece, but I'm currently doing my master's in political communication at the University of Amsterdam. I also have a bachelor's degree in social sciences. And once I'm done with my studies, I intend to pursue a career in journalism. And I joined the European Student Think Tank a while ago as an ambassador to the Netherlands. So as Florentin mentioned, in light of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which was October, we decided to focus this episode on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on domestic abuse and the experience of its survivors. We've all become aware that the circumstances brought by the pandemic have either spotlighted or intensified some pre-existing social issues like misinformation, political polarization, economic inequalities, etc. Among the most devastating outcomes of this period of confinement has been the rise of domestic abuse cases worldwide. For many people, the stay-at-home restrictions meant being trapped in the least safe of spaces and being forced to stay with an abusive partner 24-7. In general, it is well documented that domestic violence tends to increase when families spend a lot of time together, and it makes sense that this is even more so the case during a time of crisis which involves economic stress, isolation, uncertainty, instability, and reduced options for support. According to the UN, cases of domestic abuse are speculated to have increased globally up to 20% during lockdown. And this number varies, of course, cross-culturally, as there were countries that have even seen a five-fold increase. Unfortunately, the situation in Europe clearly follows the global trend. The EU countries that have managed to collect data on domestic and gendered violence during the pandemic all reported a significant increase during this period. In France, during the first week of the lockdown, authorities reported a more than 30% rise in domestic violent cases, while helplines saw a spike of calls in most EU countries. In some countries like Italy and Poland, domestic abuse calls dropped drastically, but this is no positive indication, as many desperate texts and emails have been sent instead. This is due to the fact that isolation has kept abusers inside their homes 24-7, which makes it a lot harder for survivors to reach out for help via vocal means. Surely, quarantine during COVID has made the situation even more difficult for survivors, especially when it comes to asking for help or support. Were there any institutions that offered assistance during that time? Well, this is actually the most unfortunate outcome of the situation, the unavailability of support. The pandemic was a particularly tough period because while domestic abuse survivors were spending the majority of their time with their abusers, their support networks were inaccessible. 
Seeing trusted friends and family was very hard during the peak of the restrictions, while a lot of shelters stopped accepting new people out of fear of the virus spreading within their premises. On top of that, a lot of already underfunded institutions, like NGOs protecting women from domestic abuse, were further strained by the increased demand brought by the pandemic. For example, the French domestic violence emergency number received way more calls in 2020 than in 2019, but almost half of those calls were not answered due to budgetary reasons. While the police would be considered the remaining viable alternative, the pandemic also highlighted a decline of public trust in police forces on handling such cases. In many European countries, domestic violence survivors have been reporting throughout the past decade that their cases are not treated adequately by the police, the most frequent accusations being negligence, normalization of the abuse, discouragement of the abuse survivor to file a complaint, and victim blaming. During the past two years, however, numerous stories have come to light that have further strained the confidence of people, and most importantly, domestic violence survivors, in the criminal justice system. The UK police in particular has recently come under stark criticism, being accused of deeply embedded institutional misogyny following revelations about the murder of a young girl by a police officer. The tragic incident urged major media outlets in the UK to conduct further investigations into public forces. Their findings spotlighted the epidemic of officer-perpetrated domestic abuse within the UK police force. Numerous colleagues of the notorious officer on duty have been convicted of sex crimes, while one of them was even hired in the workforce despite having a history of offence. More than a hundred officers' spouses have reported their partner is abusing them or their children in the past two years, emphasizing that officers accused of domestic abuse and sex crimes are far less likely to be convicted than the general public. Serving police officers found guilty of gendered violence is unfortunately not a phenomenon exclusive to the UK. This year, two women were murdered by their partners in France. Both women had recently filed for complaints for domestic violence, but no action was taken. In one case, the police officer who took her complaint was in disciplinary proceedings at the time due to committing domestic abuse against his own wife. In Greece, the story of a 19-year-old girl who was forced into sex work from a police officer with whom she was romantically affiliated came to light this July. 16 cases of sex crimes involving police officers were documented in Spain this year, while 54 others occurred during the previous two. The combination of these stories rightfully creates a climate of distrust towards the police among vulnerable women. This insecurity adds up to the long list of reasons preventing survivors of domestic violence from speaking up, therefore further perpetuating the issue. A recent European survey actually confirms this, finding that Polish women reported fewer cases of domestic violence during the coronavirus compared to before the pandemic. Amnesty International stated that this low level of reporting to the police is associated with a lack of faith in the criminal justice system and the fear of survivors not being believed rather than an actual decrease of cases. This is indeed very upsetting to hear, since speaking up is a way to raise awareness and survivors are being discouraged to do so.
But has the situation changed since the gradual easing of the restrictions this year? Well, unfortunately, things have actually been consistently deteriorating, with many countries in Europe seeing a rise in femicides following the lift of the measures. Especially in Spain, one woman has been killed every three days since lockdown restrictions were lifted in May 2021. The numbers of femicides have also increased this year compared to 2020 in other European countries like Belgium, Greece, and notably France, where 56 women have been murdered so far. For me personally, this deterioration was very surprising to find out, because I was naively assuming that nothing can be worse for a domestic abuse survivor than to be trapped in a house with their abusers and nowhere to go. However, experts say that life returning to normal meant for abusers sort of like a loss of control that they enjoyed during lockdowns. And this feeling can lead them to engage into more extreme acts of abuse in their effort to reclaim this lost control. Also, it is important to note that for a lot of women, leaving their partner and home during lockdown was much harder than usual. Data shows that women are 70 times more likely to be killed in the weeks after leaving their abusive partner than at any other time in the relationship. Of course, one would expect the lack of confinement to contribute positively in the situation, but the facts sadly have shown us the exact opposite. What institutional changes could be made by national police forces to regain trust, given these recent incidences? Well, this is a hard question because obviously domestic abuse survivors would be the ones to determine how the police can better respond to their needs. Um, However, I do think that, as goes with any institutional failures, showing accountability for the past and manifesting this in future policies is definitely the first step forward. Police departments need to invest in training and education of officers on cases of domestic abuse, aiming for compassionate approaches tailored to the survivor's experiences. For example, in the UK, a community-based organization called Sister Space initiated a petition to pass the so-called Valerie's Law, which will oblige officers to receive training on how to deal with ethnic minorities who report domestic abuse. This is based on the notion that due to institutional racism, women of ethnic minorities are often not perceived as equally vulnerable as white women, and their cases are not handled with appropriate diligence. Education could therefore potentially prevent or minimize at least unethical conduct, such as victim blaming, negligence and normalization of abusive behavior. Also, I think omerta, the code of silence, is a big problem within forces and allows the perpetration of arbitrariness within the institutions. Officers should be incentivized to report on colleagues who do not meet professional standards as sometimes they can be the only witnesses. Needless to say that perpetrators should be arrested, tried and prosecuted, and there should be absolutely no undermining of their actions. The police need to send a message that domestic abuse is a serious crime which will be treated accordingly, until abusers are no longer free of the fear of repercussions. 
Most importantly, police forces must keep officers to the highest possible standard. It is necessary to conduct thorough investigations into accusations against serving officers, misdemeanors and crimes. An upgrade in the police services is of utmost importance, especially focused on domestic abuse cases, where special handling is needed. However, as these cases are becoming more and more common, radical changes from above are now crucial. What has the EU in particular done so far? Well, the EU has taken some substantial steps. Uh, for example, in May 2020, the Commission proposed to put uh, 3 billion euros into the emergency support instrument for the healthcare sector, which can fund support for managing the threat to security, including domestic violence, due to confinement. The EU also encouraged all member states to participate in a new EU survey on gender-based violence, which was described as the first wave of a new era in comprehensive data collection on this topic in the EU. And member states were also allowed to apply for a grant from Eurostat to cover approximately 80% of the costs of implementing the survey. Uh, one of the most important recent developments has been announced in the Commission President's State of the Union speech in September. President von der Leyen told MEPs that the EU executive would propose a law to combat violence against women that will include prevention, protection and effective prosecution, both online and offline, by the end of 2021. In response, EU lawmakers, in their own report, stated that the Commission should list gender-based violence as a new area of crime. Some member states like Slovenia, Belgium and the Czech Republic really rose to the challenge of tackling domestic abuse by launching some innovative action plans that were aimed to facilitate survivors to seek help. For example, in the Czech Republic, an app designed to assist survivors of sexual and domestic violence was adapted and very effectively promoted. Uh, with hairdressers and wellness personnel receiving training to encourage survivors to join the app. Other countries like Spain, Latvia, Estonia, Slovakia and France adopted legislation to declare shelters and hotlines essential services during the pandemic, as well as obliging governments to provide women facing violence at home with alternative accommodation. It is important to note that it's essential that all EU member states ratify and implement the Istanbul Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. The Istanbul Convention is a comprehensive international document which binds states to set up key measures against domestic violence. All EU countries have signed up, but some have yet to ratify it. In January 2021, the Parliament endorsed the Commission's intention to propose measures to achieve the Istanbul Convention's objective in 2021 if some member states continue to block its ratification by the EU. Now, considering the consistent deterioration of the problem, perhaps it is better that this is done sooner than later. Noting that while institutional changes are important, the legal procedures are quite time-consuming and do not solve the problem immediately. So what additional measures can the EU take to protect domestic abuse survivors across Europe as we speak? This is very true, 
and very important because we cannot expect that while negotiations and institutional changes are underway, the issue will just moderate itself in the meantime. So it is crucial that until we see the desired reforms on a higher level, the Commission should increase funding for civil society organizations like helplines and shelters assisting domestic abuse survivors. Additionally, EU institutions should collaborate with national NGOs and equality bodies to launch several projects including law enforcement training, research and policy making training, awareness raising campaigns, etc. To achieve all this, it is important to ensure that the mandate of all European equality bodies actually allows them to work on domestic abuse. Additionally, the EU needs to emphasize the importance of the rule of law within the Union and issue warnings or even potentially call for budgetary cuts towards specific states that seem to be deviating. Otherwise, it risks sending a message of tolerance. Now, the implementation of EU legislation is often challenging since interference with national sovereignty is always a delicate matter. However, the respect of human rights and protection of human dignity are at the core of the Union, and as such, they should be safeguarded. The EU should not, under any circumstances, allow domestic violence to be politicized or be viewed as a contested issue. Domestic violence is intergenerational, and its consequences extend to countless societal issues, from child trauma and youth crime, to public violence, substance abuse and homelessness. Amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, a time when multiple menaces to our society have come to surface, it has become clear that the need for the public system to press for better protection of domestic abuse survivors is now more urgent than ever. This year, the number of female victims of homicide has increased to a notable degree, and yet, these cases have only been unofficially classified as femicides. Why do you think this offense is important to be established in the criminal law? And are there any social factors contributing to this situation? So I do believe that it is actually very important that the EU, along with the UN, uh, assume the responsibility of raising awareness on the importance of femicide being declared a criminal offense. The term femicide describes a murder of which the motive is explicitly related to a female victim's gender. It acknowledges that the root causes of femicide may differ from other types of murder and they're related to the position of women in society as established by institutional discourse, norms, gender roles, gender prejudices, stereotypes and unequal power dynamics. Because in various contexts, the idea that intimate partner violence is a private family matter runs deep, and violence against women is culturally and socially embedded, such crimes continue to be accepted, tolerated, or justified. This tolerance and normalization of gendered violence is reflected on global data on femicides, which demonstrate widespread immunity for perpetrators who engage in such crimes. Naturally, this impunity intensifies the subordination and powerlessness of the victims while sending the message that male violence against women is inevitable and acceptable. Studies actually point to numerous advantages of establishing femicide as a hate crime. 
In countries in which femicide is not a specific criminal offense, this may lead to legal misclassification, which often completely annuls the gender component of the crime and leads to milder punishments. Additionally, it is worth noting that the majority of femicides are committed by intimate partners and are often the end result of her perpetual abuse. The classification of such crimes as hate crimes would therefore lead to more adequate investigations and prompt responses, and most importantly, the prosecution and punishment of perpetrators. At the same time, abuse and killings by intimate partners are known to be significantly underreported. While data on femicides are particularly difficult to gather when they are classified as homicides. Distinguishing between femicide and homicide would therefore facilitate the monitoring and studying of gendered crime and finding adequate measures for its prevention. So, the benefits of establishing crimes deriving from racist, anti Semitic, ableist, and homophobic views as hate crimes are widely acknowledged by numerous national legislations. The fact that sexism and prejudiced conceptions of women are deeply embedded in sociocultural norms has long been established. Therefore, why do we hesitate to acknowledge this legally and protect victims from gendered hate crimes? I do believe that, at the end of the day, it is a matter of an intersectional approach to justice because the gender component of women's victimization is yet to be acknowledged. Raising awareness and educating the public of the benefits and potential of such a legislative reform is crucial. It is a given that the more public opinion pushes for specific changes, the more attention is drawn to relative discussions and activity on the institutional level. So if the EU and the UN commit to increase public awareness and engagement with the issue, we are way more likely to see a more speedy implementation process. Thank you very much, Joanna, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy I've been part of this conversation. This is all for today's episode. If you want to see more of our content, check out the EST website. And we strongly recommend you to read Joanna's interesting article on that subject on our website as well. Yes, thank you for listening. To let us know about something you would like to hear on this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at See you next week.